right? If you care deeply about something, right, you really want to do well at work because your career is a meaningful part of your life, mm. of course you're going to have anxiety about it, right? The only way, so I asked them, I'm like, look, if you really want to get rid of your anxiety, if that's your agenda, you walk in, you're like, I want it to go from eight, eight to a four, I'd be like, great, the only way I know to do that is you have to stop caring about your work, yeah. right? Uh -huh. Or if you have social anxiety, the only way that I know for you to not have any social anxiety is to not care about people. Mm. Are you willing to not care about people anymore? Mm. Of course not. Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it. Because the problems we're gonna be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom podcast. My guest here is Cameron Seppa. Uh, he is a, and I'll let him introduce himself. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure. I've listened to the podcast before, and cool. so it's always great to be able to join as a guest. Awesome. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about myself and my background. So um, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist by training. I have two specialties. One is in anxiety disorders. And the other one is in behavioral medicine, which is basically the behavioral treatment of um, chronic diseases. Mm -hmm. um, so I still um, practice. I have a private practice that focuses on what I kind of call performance psychology. So just like sports psychologists work with elite athletes, I work with elite executives, mostly CEOs and VCs, uh, in terms of managing their uh, stress and anxiety in order to be optimally healthy and optimal performers. Um, and I still am a um, clinical professor of psychiatry at UCSF Medical School, where I train the psychiatry residents. In fact, after this podcast, I'm going to go over there and do some clinical supervision. So I basically teach them to diagnose and treat uh, uh -huh. patients. So that's how I sort of keep my, my clinical and academic hats active. Um, but I actually moved out um, here to Silicon Valley to be an entrepreneur. Um, so full time, I've been doing that. I helped start a company called Omada Health, which mm -hmm. is... Uh, essentially taking my specialty of behavioral medicine and doing digital behavioral medicine. So basically creates online health behavior change programs to mm -hmm. help people lose weight and reduce the risk of diabetes and heart disease. I then started a consumer nutrition company called Actualize that produced nutritionally complete ketogenic meals mm -hmm. um, to help patients better comply with a keto diet because mm -hmm. compliance is the hard part mm -hmm. with that. Um, that company was acquired and then now um, I'm a venture capitalist, so I invest in consumer and health tech companies, since those are the companies that I did as an entrepreneur, um, and sort of use the, the psychology and coaching framework uh, in terms of working with my entrepreneurs uh, to help them be as successful as they can be. And that's really interesting because a lot of VCs mentioned that they, they kind of are informal coaches and totally. informal psychologists, and you're saying I'm a formal exactly. psychologist. Yeah, I think there's a Mark Suster um, post about how being a CEO and a VC is really like being a chief psychologist. Uh -huh. And so 
I think I read that years ago, and I was like, oh, well, then maybe I should be a VC then, because I can definitely do that better than, than most people. Right? Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm really interested in talking to you about stress, anxiety, and fear, uh, and your clinical perspectives on it, and how that how that either interacts, disagrees with the theory, and all these different things. So let's um, let's talk about stress. What is what is your overarching vision of stress? What is it? What's the definition? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and I wanted to kind of go into it. Um, I usually hate like having a, a semantic discussion uh-huh. and being too academic about it, but I actually think it's useful because I was listening to even some of your previous podcasts and kind of people use the word stress in many different ways. Mm-hmm. And so there's this debate, for instance, like is stress good or not? And but I almost feel like sometimes people are talking about different things. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about having like a really demanding schedule, uh, that can be a good thing, right? As, as some of the, your previous um, guests have mentioned, but uh, I, I, I sort of define stress in a very concrete way, which is to me, stress is, is the physiological fight, flight, or freeze response, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's a very concrete and measurable thing um, that's driven by um, uh, cortisol and there's other you know chemicals involved like um, epinephrine or what most people know as adrenaline and noradrenaline mm-hmm. um, that you can measure. Um, the challenge though is, um, with a physiological approach is like most people don't get their cortisol measured unless mm-hmm. there, there's like some issue going on. And I, I, even being an expert in the field, I've never measured mm-hmm. my cortisol, even though you can do it through, through salivary means. Mm-hmm. I think there will be a future in which using things like HRV or heart rate variability, um, with things like the Apple watch and other wearables becoming more ubiquitous, we can sort of measure it. In fact, I, I invested in a company called Feel that's sort of trying to create a Fitbit for your emotions. Mm-hmm. So I think as these things go more mainstream, we'll be able to um, sort of better uh, sort of measure stress. Um, but it is a very physiological thing. So does that physiological thing also happen in terms of you stress, the positive side of stress? Does your fight and flight um, uh, system also get engaged in, in when you're experiencing positive stress? Yes, absolutely. Does. So. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about that because I think there, there are two important um, differentiations on like two axes in which you can measure stress. The other part that I wanted to though mention is um, I don't want to say it's psychological stress because reality like uh, psychology and physiology are inextricably intertwined. It, we have this very Western notion of Cartesian mind-body dualism, which is really just a fancy word, or we consider the mind and body to be separate, mm-hmm. right? There's a ton of research literature and um, that, that shows that's clearly not true. And obviously these things are linked and you know, there's been a lot about even the gut-brain axis, for instance, that we've discovered even in the last few years. But you can actually very easily measure stress. So even to the listeners of this podcast, you can just Google perceived stress scale, the PSS. It's probably the most commonly used stress scale. And it's a bunch of questions, um, but you can you know uh, answer the questions, score it, and it'll tell you if you have low, moderate, or high levels of stress. So that's kind of a quick and easy measure. The interesting thing about it is it's kind of broken up into two components if you look at the questions. So one of the questions is a little bit more about the emotions. It, mm-hmm. it asks you, are you nervous, stressed, upset, angered by you know these situations in your life? But the other interesting thing is that a lot of the questions have a lot to, more to do with coping, mm-hmm. right? Which is like, do you feel a sense of control? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you feel like you can handle it? Are you confident that you can deal with it? Can you cope with these things? Do you feel on top of your schedule? that you can overcome challenges, right? Mm. So if you think about it from that lens, it's not just the physiological response, but it's there's an appraisal aspect of it, mm. which is, do you feel like, even though it is, um, um, whether it's a challenge or a threat, the challenge being more the you stress, mm. the threat being the distress, um, 
that you can that you can cope appropriately mm-hmm. for it. So um, that's why I think it's an important thing to sort of differentiate um, between those things, and also differentiate between acute and chronic stress, mm-hmm. right? In that, if if we're if we're talking about the question of is stress helpful, I think that's really the question is is, is a temporal one of time, mm-hmm. right? So we evolved the stress response for a very obviously concrete reason. It saves our lives, right? Mm-hmm. If there's an animal attacking you or a car bearing down on you on the street, you want that stress response activated to alert you and hopefully motivate you into action. Mm-hmm. The problem, of course, is that we evolved these things, um, one, obviously, for survival. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily meant to be chronically activated in the way. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, you know, people always talk about you know, um, you know, we evolved these things because if there's, you know, you're being attacked by an animal or you're going on a hunt, um, you should have a stress response because it alerts you and gets you prepared and motivated to do what you need to do. But the other thing is we are very social creatures. Mm-hmm. So we do feel stress, not just to life-threatening situations, but quite frankly, if our social status in the sort of hierarchy of our group or tribe is threatened, we do perceive stress because if you think about it back in our evolutionary history, that was a meaningful thing, right? If you get kicked out of your tribe, you may not be able to eat or fend for yourself. So we're, we're very acutely uh, aware of, you know, if we feel a sense of rejection, mm-hmm. right? And, and uh, people are like, well, that's not life or death. And you're like, well, maybe it was um, in some period. And so we, we still retain that um, in a very real way that we, f- we experience in a very physiological way. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And so you talk a lot about uh, anxiety and fear too, and what what how what is the relationship between stress and fear and uh, and anxiety? Yeah, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, uh, stress and fear are I would say relatively synonymous. Mm-hmm. So the stress is sort of the underlying physiological response. Um, when you have fear, you have a stress response. Fear, though, is usually in response to a, a perceived threat, mm. right? So if there's like a, you know, you're hiking along in the woods and a bear just pops onto the trail, you'll have a fear response um, because it's obviously an acute threat that's happening. Mm. Um, but it's not always, stress I, is not always bad. So I wanted to just like share a counter. There's some acute counter examples where having the activation is not bad. So a physical example is obviously exercise, right? Mm-hmm. So if you literally measured someone's cortisol, HRV, when they're doing working out, they're, they're having a stress response. But as we talked about in terms of the perceived stress, it's usually not perceived as a, mm-hmm. a stressful thing. In fact, it's, it's a health, you know, people interpret it in a positive way because you're, you're doing some good for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, there's a mental equivalent of that too. If you're doing a challenging task, like a puzzle or a math problem, it does sort of activate um, physiologically ourselves as well. Because, you know, you're, you're kind of grinding the, the mental gears as well. But if you're seeing that as a positive thing, I'm learning, I'm, I'm challenging myself, I'm doing my Sudoku puzzle, people actually seek these out, mm-hmm. right? So acute stress um, isn't necessarily bad in and of itself, right? Um, which I think is an important thing. And in fact, it may be useful for performance. So one of the interesting things in psychology that we talk about is something called the Yerkes Dodson law, and that's basically, if you think about it, it's an up uh, or try to visualize it. It's an upside down U-shaped curve where, um, if sort of uh, anxiety or fear um, or anxiety is on the uh, x-axis, right? You're trying to increase it, and performance is on the y-axis. You actually want a moderate uh, degree of 
um, arousal or anxiety, essentially, mm-hmm. because it lets you be more awake. If you're trying to give a speech or a podcast like we're doing now, <laughs> like you don't want to be drifting off, right? But obviously, once it gets past moderate, if it starts becoming really high anxiety, it thus impairs performance, mm-hmm. right? So if you think about it, it's really, we're trying to have a sweet spot mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to these things, especially if you're in, in a, an athletic performance or a um, you know, performing in a social situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes it's a matter of um, sort of degree um, that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other interesting thing about it is, um, as you were sort of alluding to earlier and I wanted to get to, was this this notion of sort of um, distress versus eustress or sort of negative versus um, positive stress. And, and the reason we, we, we sort of talk about this is actually coming from sort of the, the medical or hospital world. So mm-hmm. like when I was at UCLA doing my doctorate, um, I actually wrote my dissertation on breast and prostate cancer patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the interesting things when you work with this population is obviously it's a very stressful thing to get a cancer diagnosis. Fortunately, these days, if you catch certain things early, like breast and prostate cancer, mm-hmm. um, it's no longer a death sentence. The um, survival rates are 90 plus percent nowadays. Right. So. Um, uh, it's not as threatening as it used to be, but obviously it does it's significantly crazy. impact your life, right? Yeah. So, but one of the interesting things that we found, and this isn't true for everyone, but there's a segment of people in which when they have a, a sort of a life-threatening um, or a, a serious sort of diagnosis like cancers, they actually report finding benefit from mm-hmm. it. And it's, and it's actually sort of, it's counterintuitive, right? You're like, why would you, nobody would want obviously to get cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes the being in touch with one's mortality um, helps people reprioritize, right? Like they might, for instance, have been a, a workaholic business person who never prioritized them, their health or their family. And obviously when they're faced with sort of this sentence, they're like, oh man, I, I should, this, maybe this time, this is the time for me to re- reprioritize. They start taking care of themselves, start spending more quality time with their loved ones, mm. um, and, and refine the sense of balance in their life. Mm. So sometimes, um, as opposed to sort of post-traumatic stress, where someone encounters a, a terrible stressor and it causes dysfunction, mm. we find that sometimes people actually um, experience what we call post-traumatic growth, mm. right? Where they find benefit, and it actually sort of turns their life around uh, for the better. How can someone know or understand what's needed in order to have uh, chronic stress not turn into something that is post-traumatic stress, but turns into something that leads to post-traumatic growth? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I don't think it's always um, predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there does seem to be um, what's called sort of a diathesis stress model um, that we talk about. And that's really just a fan. Uh, diathesis is just a word for predisposition, right? Some people are probably more predisposed to PTSD. Mm-hmm. And if they just encounter enough stress, like going off to war or some sort of traumatic situation, mm-hmm. um, they're much more likely to have it. But we know that actually, I mean, we send, uh, unfortunately, uh, many people to a very traumatic uh, encounters overseas and not everyone comes back with PTSD. In fact, sometimes people encounter much more, um, you know, terrible situations, uh, come back fine. And sometimes people who deal with things that seem less stressful, um, you know, come back very wounded, uh, you know, psychologically. But I do think there are some things that, um, uh, sort of predict more of the post-traumatic growth and meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know this because we've, uh, psychologists and other researchers have tried in labor- laboratory studies to actually induce 
almost experimentally post-traumatic growth Mm -hmm. by having people, for instance, write and reflect on their experiences, right? They're like, okay, talk about your cancer. Talk about all the ways that it sucks and has been terrible for your life. And, and then let's talk about, you know, have there been anything that, that has been unexpectedly positive, right? How has it impacted your relationship? And so sometimes the actual reflection, um, on it and, um, asking people to, to sort of make sense of, Mm -hmm. Um, what may be a senseless experience um, can certainly do that. Um, and, and we know there's health benefits, right? So some people report uh, increased meaning um, from having these terrible experiences. They're, they're sometimes their, their mood improves. And there actually are health benefits. In fact, the cortisol that I was talking about, sometimes because it is measured experimentally, you do some see some people once they go through sort of a post-traumatic growth experience, their, their stress levels actually decrease um, over time. And the theory for why that is, is um, there there are certain sort of plausible mechanisms for why that is. And if you explore those, then it kind of gets to your question of, well, how can we actually try to intervene or induce them, Mm -hmm. right? So one thing is is sort of the appraisal, right? Which is like, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. Why did, you know, God or why did fate do -hmm. this to me, right? So that's a very negative appraisal versus yeah, I wouldn't wish this upon myself, but maybe it sort of woke me up. And maybe this is, in fact, just the sort of the medicine, quote unquote, that I needed mm-hmm. to, um, you know, turn my life around before I had a midlife crisis or, or reach the end of my life. Um, uh, coping is, is certainly a mechanism. So, you know, sometimes obviously when, you know, people get sick, um, they take very proactive steps to cope mm-hmm. where they might join a support group, for instance, they never would have done otherwise and or join a community, right? that provides them with that support. Um, so that can be very positive. Um, obviously investing in their relationships, being closer with their family, friends, or loved ones. Um, but also just reprioritizing their goals, right? As I mentioned, the workaholic example, you know, oftentimes we do have very misprioritized lives. And so um, by sort of honing in on the things that are very important to us, particularly that's in line with our values, mm-hmm. can sort of promote that post-traumatic um, growth. And it has um, sort of interesting consequences, right? So it can actually buffer stress. Uh, that's the sort of a term that we used um, uh, as a result of that. So you mentioned something really interesting that I want to give a resource to people who are listening who might be in San Francisco, which is that if you if you or your family members are going through a cancer uh, scare, you can. There are free classes at UCSF at the Osher Center of Integrative Medicine, which you can go to for yoga, laughter medicine. They were very helpful for when my father got cancer. I was able to go and check those out and kind of talk talks to what you're talking about, about these community kind of things. So UCS offers free classes for that type of stuff. Um, yeah, and that's a, that's a great resource. In fact, some of the folks that are affiliated with the OSHA Center, um, Judy Moskowitz, Celissa Apple, um, I collaborated with and did research with. Interesting. Um, and we published actually a paper on benefit finding um, where we talked about this concept um, I always apologize for academics because we love these buzzwords, <laughs> but we talked about allostasis. So I actually think it's useful to talk about because most people are familiar with homeostasis. So homeostasis is, um, you know, your body's ability to um, reach equilibrium again, mm-hmm. right? So if you imagine, like, for instance, your heart rate may generally be like 60 beats per minute normally if we're just sitting down and relaxed. And obviously you get up, start walking around, and you encounter a stressful situation, it'll go back up. And then it'll come back down to homeostasis. Mm. So that was like, that's a very simple sort of model. But we were talking about sort of a newer model, which is allostasis. Um, that's a little bit broader. And it's, it's more the adaptive function mm. of human beings. So 
um, you know, if maybe your heart rate is sort of 60 beats per minute, but if you start training as a cyclist or a runner, mm -hmm. um, you're putting your body under this enhance, uh, increased load, right? And what literally the heart and the body uh, adapt to that, right? So your heart rate, your baseline may in fact go down to 50 beats per minute from becoming, you know, enhanced cardio uh, vascular capacity and training. Mm -hmm. And so that's the other thing that I think is very positive. Human beings are incredibly resilient, both psychologically and physiologically, and we can actually enhance our allostasis. And so in the paper, we actually talked about four different mechanisms for why, um, you know, this post-traumatic growth, this benefit finding improves physical health through our th sort of theory was mm -hmm. enhanced allostasis. And so there's four different um, really concrete examples of that. So one is um, you may just literally get less hits or stress responses throughout the day, right? So if, imagine if like your normal day, you may have 10 incidents where your heart rate just kind of spikes up and you have a sort of a stress response. But if you change your appraisals, right? Where you're like, oh, I'm not gonna sweat the small things, mm -hmm. so to speak, maybe you'll only have five hits that day. So you have sort of less frequent stress episodes or hits um, that improve sort of your, your uh, functioning. The other thing is sort of um, rapid habituation mm -hmm. or what's called extinction. So um, when you do encounter a stress, let's say you do have a little bit of social anxiety, mm -hmm. you have um, multiple meetings throughout the day. And so you're just going to trigger that stress response a little bit. Um, it may be that folks that have sort of this enhanced allostasis, they just get used to it faster. Where I'm sure, like, for instance, in, in your world, you've, how many podcasts have you done, right? Yeah. Your anxiety about it has probably gone down Absolutely. significantly over time. So yeah. we just habitually, we get used to these things. Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing is just more rapid recovery, right? So when we do, you know, some people to always, to some extent, they might have a stress response if they're giving a public speech. Mm -hmm. That's probably, you know, a normal sort of thing but you may uh, recover a lot faster. So if your heart rate goes up to 100, it'll go back down to the normal 60 um, pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, uh, Keith, I think talked about that in terms of one of your previous podcasts in response to, well. yeah, physical exercise. Yeah. And then the sort of the fourth thing is, is lower tonic arousal. So um, this is kind of analogous to the lower heart rate thing where your, your sort of baseline levels of stress all throughout the day may actually just become lower mm -hmm. because you've developed more of this resilience um, over time. So these are all sort of like mechanisms for why we think um, this happens. And eventually I think we'll get to the point that we can measure these things um, a little bit more concretely and see how this sort of changes over time. And if it's not changing or it's changing in the worse for certain patients or when we're encountering difficult uh, stretch of time at work, um, you know, hopefully that can sort of alert us and, and sort of guide us in a different direction. So I would love to talk about delusion and uh, and rigidity and because what you just mentioned is really interesting and it comes to mind things that I've been working on in my own life, which is not the sense that I used to have that I'm invulnerable, that I'll that that doesn't matter what kind of stresses get in my life, that I can handle it all, mm -hmm. and switching that to a framework of essentially. Um, it's my ability to recover quickly that I, mm -hmm. that is my benefit, and that that might be more have more evidence behind it. Um, and that so the first one seemed like a delusion, where it's like where, <laughs> yeah. where it's like I'm delusional that I, the thing that obviously things will will can take me out illnesses yeah. and stuff like that. Whereas the second one seems more open. I forget the word that you actually used in yeah, maybe flexible. Flexible, that's it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so can you talk more about that? That flexibility and rigidity and and how people and, and maybe even tie it into the the performance versus therapy model. I don't want to say that. What I mean is, is, is the model of, of, 
performance enhancement, but then what do you need to get to to the point where you start working on performance as opposed to starting from this to getting to a normal baseline? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, the funny thing is like the whole like coaching versus therapy. Yeah. I, uh, I have a very particular and perhaps biased point of view, but <laughs> I actually think that, um, and, and if there's a great article on HBR about this called The Very Real Dangers of Executive Coaching and uh-huh. talks about why coaches should actually be licensed mental health professionals. Yeah. So I take a pretty strict view on that because the reason is um, the line between coaching and therapy is very blurry, mm-hmm. quite honestly. Yeah. And, and people sort of make this artificial distinction that, um, you know, in therapy, you're going from negative five to zero. You're working on pathology, but in coaching, you're going from zero to positive five and working on growth. The reality is that's totally arbitrary. Um, In fact, a lot of the barriers to growth is maybe you have a dysfunctional relationship with your anxiety and we need to deal with that. Um, And at the same time, we can work on your personal growth. These are not mutually exclusive things. Mm -hmm. The danger, of course, though, is that if you're just sort of focusing on the quote unquote positive or more growth um, oriented things, like I want to enhance my um, interpersonal relationships, right? And that's a great sort of positive growth oriented goal. But um, if you're not a licensed mental health professional, you may not realize the reason this person is having interpersonal issues is because they have a personality disorder mm-hmm. and, and you're totally missing the root cause of it and you're not addressing it, right? And you're just like trying to teach this person better social skills. <laughs> you don't realize they're like a flagrant narcissist and there's some more deep um, mm-hmm. uh, seated things that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. So. Um, there's, and, and, you know, even if you go back to the 1960s, you know, psychologists, even in the context of therapy, have been very growth-oriented. Literally, self-actualization was coined by Abraham Maslow, um, you know, a psychologist. So I think we've just sort of lost that a little bit because, you know, in a very medicalized model where it's insurance reimbursed, mm-hmm. you know, there are um, certain incentives to just focus a little bit more on diagnostic treatment. but. The, the blessing of obviously a private practice like I have is you, you can kind of do what you want and, and sort of cater to people's needs. Um, but, you know, uh, just talking a little bit about the, um, the pathological side of things. So we've talked a lot about, you know, earlier in this podcast um, about, you know, what stress is and, and how it's not always, in fact, um, negative. But there is a there is sort of a dark side to it. And mm-hmm. so um, we do have something that we call acute stress syndrome. Um, and that's usually in response to a trauma. So, used in the, but when we say trauma, we're talking about a very, um, you know, a, a threat to your life or physical harm, mm-hmm. um, either to you or someone very close to you, where you might have seen someone um, harmed, or you might have been in a very dangerous situation, or someone got shot right next to you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and your, the response to that is you feel the sense of fear, helplessness, horror. This is a very strong emotional response, obviously, to having your life threatened. Um, and you know, some people get obviously very shaken when they go through something like that. Um, but they sort of recover, um, you know, for, for whatever reason. And then, but other people start developing sort of symptoms, right? And some of them are, um, a little bit more dissociative, right? Where they talk about, they have this sort of numbness, this derealization of the world doesn't really feel real depersonalization where they, they almost feel like don't feel like a normal mm-hmm. sort of person. They almost feel like a cartoon character sometimes is the way that people describe it. Mm-hmm. And then they start to re-experience um, some of those uh, symptoms, right? Where if I mentioned, for instance, that a friend, you know, right next to them got shot, mm-hmm. um, they might have thoughts or images, sometimes flashbacks during the day or dreams during the night of that. And these are sort of the classical symptoms of PTSD that the public is very um, sort of aware of. 
Um, and the challenge is because those are really distressing symptoms, you start avoiding people, places, situations that remind you of those stimuli. Like I had a lot of, when I was working in the VA with veterans, they would avoid places like Disneyland because they launch fireworks every night and the fireworks would obviously remind them of, you know, gunfire bombs and things like that. And, you know, they'd literally be diving under tables as a response to that because they would have this very real uh, sort of flashback. Um, and then, of course, it messes up their stress re response, where it's, instead of this acute stress response, they have this chronic hyperarousal, where they're just walking around on pins and needles, they're sitting with their backs, you know, and making sure they can only sit in a restaurant where their back is sort of, there's no one walking behind them, mm. you know, constantly scanning and, and sort of hyper alert. So that happens um, when you encounter a, a, um, a, this sort of trauma and you experience these symptoms. But once it goes past a month, um, and you don't recover, as we were talking about, that's when it becomes PTSD. Mm -hmm. So sort of this acute stress becomes this sort of chronic stress, um, and that's when it really becomes problematic. Now, there is sort of a, a level of chronic stress that's not necessarily trauma-induced, mm -hmm. um, and you can see this in people, for instance, who are just caregivers of you know, um, very sick or elderly folks. In fact, unfortunately, that's literally the research model of chronic stress mm -hmm. is they follow caregivers because you literally have to, you know, wash, bathe, care for, feed, med help medicate. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's a, it's a, it is a significant burden, right? And so even in the absence of trauma, just dealing with a particularly difficult stressor and you don't feel like you have a lot of support and coping resources um, can be particularly stressful. So, um, so I don't want to just don't want to discount saying like, you know, stress is um, all, you know, mm -hmm. um, flowers and roses. It's mm -hmm. certainly not. Um, but where it does matter if we're talking about sort of acute versus chronic stress. And it does matter if we're talking about um, sort of these more pathological forms that can sort of develop over time. In your research and in your practice, how much have you come across the distinction between going to the source of the issue and treating the symptoms? Um, for example, in this chronic stress where mm -hmm. it seems like somebody in that chronic state, state is not able to access the source of that and and a lot of times they'll go to somebody and, and they might actually only get their symptoms treated, like the symptoms of nightmares or the symptoms mm -hmm. of, of disassociation. How, how do you work with that? How, how do you, um, what, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I take a very sort of pragmatic mm -hmm. um, view on it. Um, symptom reduction is not inherently a bad thing. I mean, there's a little bit of a simplification saying, of course, it's better to, to treat the root cause. I would say, yes, generally, that's true. But the question is, is, is it sort of effective and does it have like the cost benefit analysis way mm -hmm. in someone's favor, right? So I, like for instance, I work with a lot of busy executives mm -hmm. um, and some of them just either don't have the time um, and I'll, I'll th I should say they don't prioritize the time. Everyone can make time if mm -hmm. they want to. Um, or just they don't have the willingness to, to sort of you know deal with underlying issues or just change their behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and so if they, you know, um, choose to take like for instance a pharmacological approach or some other symptom reduction focused approach but that works for them it sort of takes the edge off lets them be more effective in their work and their relationship they're not experiencing a lot of side effects there's not a lot of downsides then awesome you know do that so I, I'm definitely a proponent of doing what works mm -hmm. is just have to sort of understand sort of the cost benefits and also meeting the patient you know, where they're at. You know, the, the reality is when you work as a clinician and you work with a whole spectrum of people, and I've literally worked from people who are homeless to CEOs and everything in between, is, um, you know, one of the things I always say is that um, 
you know, in the medical model, the doctor is the agent of change. The patient comes and says, hey, doc, I got a problem. And the doctor usually provides a pill or a procedure to cure the agent. Their doctor is sort of the agent of change. But in psychology, when, you know, a client comes to me, I always say, I, I don't cure you. I give you the knowledge and the tools and the support mm-hmm. for you to change yourself. Right. But you have to be at that sort of readiness to change and have the confidence to change to, to be able to do that. And if you're not, then, you know, we can probably work a little bit more on a simple level or a surface level or a symptomatic level mm-hmm. um, to do that. So that's why I have sort of a nuance, Anna. You have to kind of individualize it um, to the patient mm-hmm. um, or the client. Um, but obviously sort of digging deeper and focusing on the root cause. If you're talking about sort of a long term solution, um, uh, is obviously you know beneficial. Mm. So uh, I've got a couple different places we could mm-hmm. go with this. One, I want to, f- in your clinical practice, how many times have CEOs and other people who have high success um, have found f- high external success in their lives? Uh, what percentage? I don't know if you want to give a guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, have experienced childhood trauma or intense kind of trauma that 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 uh, spurs on the search for success. Um, uh, and I'm forgetting another one, so let's go with that one. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I'm a pretty... Um, so I, first of all, I practice sort of evidence-based treatments. I, mm-hmm. I focus on CBT, which is called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and ACT, which is Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Both are very evidence-based, very behavioral, and very sort of present-focused therapies. I don't really del- delve too much into childhood mm-hmm. trauma. Mm-hmm. I, I do assess it, and I obviously if someone does have underlying issues, then you know we can make sure that's... Um, addressed appropriately, whether through me or someone else. Um, but, I, but I'm pretty sort of present focused in terms of the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of the research, um, I would actually say people who are disproportionately successful, interestingly, have much higher rates of childhood trauma, mm-hmm. um, interestingly. So, but this is the, the interesting paradox of that situation. Um, trauma is not a good predictor of success, mm-hmm. right? If someone had a terrible childhood or a very traumatic childhood or a very difficult childhood, more likely than not, they're not going to have a, a, as good of or a successful life. Now, the freak exceptions of the people who mm-hmm. dealt with that and uh, channel it or sublimate it in this super productive way tend to be the people who end up being like billionaires, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I would never wish it upon anyone. I would never encourage anyone to have a terrible childhood. Yeah. But... You know, in the types of people that I work with, and they're highly driven, highly successful people, and quite frankly, that's not normal. And so you you kind of select abnormal people, and it doesn't always have to be like childhood trauma. But I would say more often than not, the majority of folks who are disproportionately successful kind of have a chip on their shoulder. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was just like you know they grew up in a comfortable. Um, uh, successful family, but they were pushed and their parent, their dad never thought they were good enough. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, I'm going to show pops mm-hmm. that I really am. Mm-hmm. And that's what drives them. So it's maybe not trauma, but it is like this, uh, this chip on the shoulder that they're channeling in a certain direction, or maybe they got rejected by, you know, a, an ex boyfriend or girlfriend. They want to prove that they are someone of worth. Now, obviously that's a dangerous line to walk in terms of being ex- very extrinsically motivated in terms mm-hmm. of what you do. Mm-hmm. But again, if we if we go back to this philosophy of like, is it effective? Um, some people really do channel their angst um, mm-hmm. effectively. And obviously you talk a lot about creativity. Artists channel their mm-hmm. you know, angst in very creative 
um, way. So I, I don't think it's good to all, automatically pathologize it. It's just a question of does that work for that person? Mm. And also, and especially the work that I do holistically with people is like, does it also work for the rest of their lives? Because you do have people who are disproportionately successful in their careers, but their health, their relationships are a mess. Mm -hmm. And that's often the consequences that we see is they can just hold it together amazingly and be more driven than anyone I know mm -hmm. when it comes to their work. But that, that sort of strategy doesn't apply as well when it comes to mm -hmm. your intrapersonal or interpersonal success. Mm -hmm. Which is really interesting. Um, and also, you mentioned a point which is really interesting. Nobody listening to the show should go out and seek stress because they want to become successful and like and and think that that it's like a byproduct of it. I think as well. Yeah, I, but I do think you should you should approach challenging situations and and sort of test yourself. Mm -hmm. So, um, and as a result of that, you may experience stress. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, yes, yeah, stress for stress sake. I, and I, I guess I meant trauma. Uh, oh yeah, trauma. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah don't, don't go traumatize yourself. That the life I already say is like hard enough. If you if you go out and and, yeah. and challenge yourself enough, you you trust me, you'll experience enough stress and hopefully not, but probably you will experience some trauma. Uh -huh. um, but it's it's more about dealing with it, and as you provided nice resources as well, mm -hmm. you know. Um, being willing to, to, to sort of deal with it appropriately. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next hundred years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day.